your Bibles tonight to to Second Kings chapter number two for just a little bit. This isn't where our series is going to begin, but uh, it's where we need to start because, uh, as I said this morning, about ten years ago, I preached a series entitled "The Lord God of Elijah," and I want to show you where that phrase was found and it's where Elisha is preparing to to assume the ministry of, of his mentor Elijah and so verse number nine says and it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee and Elisha said I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken up from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass as they still went on and talked. And behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha saw it. And he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. And he took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. In the day in which we live, in the tough times that we face, you know, sometimes we try to compare one generation with another and we think about the tough times that we face and try to compare that to the early church in the catacombs and the great persecution they were under and suddenly we hang our head in shame and say, my, we don't face hard times at all. But we have to understand that every generation is different and difficulties come in different sizes and shapes and sorts, different kinds. I almost delayed starting this series of messages because of uh, something that I had on my heart. I don't know when I'll ever get to it because it's really quite lengthy and it's something I can't do in in just even two or three sermons I don't think and just the introduction to it uh, would take a long while but uh, but it has to do with the times that we're living in and what we're facing today in in the morning manna this morning I wrote about uh, the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in, and I'll be writing about that again in the morning, just a little brief article on spiritual warfare. We don't even know the, the, the half of it. We don't even see the tip of the iceberg of what we're really facing today and, and, and the powers that we're struggling against, you know. And we keep thinking, you know, boy, if we can get this party in office or that party in office and 
And, and for one thing, and it's so interesting because whenever you look ahead and you see how it all comes to an end, and you, you, you see the means that Satan uses in dispensing his lies to deceive people, uh, you very well can see the power of the press today. And let me tell you, we have a generation that no longer even thinks for themselves. They're being spoon-fed what evil people want them to know and want them to believe. So whenever I say we're living in tough times, please understand, I don't mean that we're going through great persecution like you know, like other generations have. Thank God for that. We at least have some laws left that protect us from that. But what I mean is, in tough times, is that we face great difficulties wherein we need the Lord God of Elijah, I think, today more than ever. We wrestle against problems that we can't solve. We struggle with questions that we can't answer. We face needs that we can't meet. And uh, we need to rediscover the greatness of God. Many years ago, a fellow by the name of J.B. Phillips wrote a little book entitled, Your God is Too Small. And boy, I tell you, it hits the nail on the head because the concept that some people have of God leaves them with a God that is too small. And I want you to know our God is big enough. Amen? He's big enough to do whatever. We need help, and it's clear that we need the kind of help that God alone can provide. And that's that's why I wanted to get into this series here concerning the Lord God of Elijah. And we're going to look at the life and ministry of Elijah and also of Elisha because the two the two go together. And so we're going to look at both of them in the months ahead. But um, from the story, we can see how God supplies our needs in different ways. And we also see the kind of person that God can use. Uh, I said this morning, I'm going to speak about the person that God uses. And tonight I have Elijah in mind. That's where we need to start. And uh, here is a man that stood before both kings and peasants. He Here's a man that begged for bread, and yet he supplied the needs of others. Here is a man that prayed both fire and water down from heaven. Here is a man that ran from Jezebel, but stood up and challenged 850 false prophets. Here's a man that slew the false prophets of God, and yet... On the other hand, he raised the dead. He went up from the valley in a chariot of fire, but he stood with Jesus on the mount much later on. He's first mentioned back in 1 Kings chapter 17, and we'll get there, Lord willing, next week. And in chapter 16, it tells us that he lived in exceeding evil times. And so the times that he lived in, the difficulties that he faced, reminds us of the day that we live in and the problems that we encounter. And so the importance of this has to do with showing us what God can do, regardless of how difficult the circumstances might be. And we need that kind of assurance today. I, 
you know, we can talk about faith, but there's a big difference between talking about faith and really having the kind of faith that that operates in our life. The kind of faith that will pull us up out of the pit of despair. The kind of faith that will get us on the road to duty. The kind of faith that will cause us to challenge the enemies and win the battles and do the things that God wants us to do. That's the kind of faith I'm talking about. And it's one thing to talk about it and another thing to have it. And that kind of faith is developed out of what we believe about God. It's not positive thinking. It's having our focus on God, knowing who He is and what He can do and what He has promised to do, being convinced that He's able to supply all of our needs. And, and that in spite of our faults and failures. Boy, I'll tell you what, we'd all be in a heap of trouble if the Lord said, Now look, if you'll live a perfect life, I'll do this and I'll do that. But we look through the Word of God and we see that none of God's servants were perfect. And yet, and yet, God used them. So tonight I want you to notice four things about Elijah because it tells us the kind of person that God uses. Turn over to James chapter number 5 to begin with. James chapter number 5. And let's begin in verse number 16. The last part of it at least, but it begins by saying, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another. That, that's good advice, that you may be healed. That's a great need. But notice what he says next. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias, speaking of Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by a space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Notice in verse number 17, it speaks about him as being subject to like passions as. Now notice that phrase, just those words, subject to like passions as. That is one Greek word. One word in the Greek, and it means suffering the like with another of the same feeling and affection. Suffering the like with another of the same feeling and affection. Let me put that down in just simple language we can all understand. That's another way of saying he was a common man. That's exactly what it's saying. He was just a common man. He didn't have any angel wings, you know. His, his nature was like our nature. He had the same kind of experiences that we do as an ordinary, natural man, but he depended upon a God who was supernatural. And, and if we'll remember that, here's an ordinary, common man depending upon an extraordinary, supernatural God, and it helps us because of, we think about the great people that have suffered, you know, the same things that we have, and, and face the same kind of difficulties, and it reminds us if they did, then we have nothing to complain about because no one is exempt. I mean, how can I complain about my problems when I look at somebody that was much better than I am, like Paul or Elijah or Elisha, and see that, you know, they face more difficulties than I did? So how can I complain about what I'm going through? But it also is a reminder that God is able to do extraordinary things with ordinary people. That's important. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, if you want to turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. 
And this ought to be something that encourages all of us when we think about God using us. And naturally, that ought to be the desire of our heart. Verse 26, he says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, and not many mighty, and not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. And here's the reason that no flesh should glory in His presence. I've heard preachers, you know, in talking about Samson, you know, and, and we've all, they've, they've made movies of Samson, you know, and people have painted pictures of Samson, and here you have this great big dude, and I mean he's got bulging biceps and the rippling muscles and everything. And, and I, I've always said, and I, I kind of believe, I don't believe he looked like that. I really think he's just probably a common, ordinary-looking guy, you know, and like a pushover, and, uh, you know, they, they didn't see any physical reason to really fear Samson because it wasn't Samson's strength that enabled him, but rather it was God. You know, if Samson, if Samson had had, let's say, miracle-working power in and of himself, to where all of the success could be attributed to him, then none of the glory would have gone to God. But whenever God takes some plain old ordinary guy that, you know, that just, boy, you know, you, people look at him and say, there's no reason in the world why that guy, you know, should ever succeed. I, I mean, there's no reason. He has no ability, no, no great intellect, uh, no great education or whatever, and yet, and yet, just look at what he's done. When you see that, then you know God did it. And that's what it's all about. Isn't it a wonderful thought to think and to know that God is willing to use you to fulfill His eternal purpose? That's a phrase out of Ephesians where Paul talks about the eternal purpose of God. What God's doing is a whole lot bigger than what we envision you know we think about and you know we pastors we think about the church and and what we'd like to see it become and what we'd like to see it be because we know we have only a limited amount of time here on the earth and and so forth and so we're very much concerned about that but in the big scheme of things god's kingdom is much bigger than one local church and it's bigger than one generation it extends out into eternity. And to think that God says, you know, I want to use you and you and you. I want to use each one of you in some way to fulfill my eternal purpose. Now, that's something worth living for. Amen? That's something to invest your life in. That God would use imperfect people to accomplish His perfect plan that's something that ought to excite us and boy i i just wish there was some way that i could make every person see the great possibilities that exist for the person that's really truly willing to yield themselves to god without any reservation because a lot of people don't understand they don't you know it, it might be that they think well 
You know, I don't have any unusual ability. I don't have any great talent or any great intellect. I, boy, it's really, really limited in what God could ever do with me. You know, I'm just not much used to God. Well, not with that attitude, you're not, but you could be. The potential is there because the potential doesn't rest upon who you are and what you can do. It depends upon what God can do. And God has a work for each of us. The Bible says He's given to every man His work. So every child of God has a work to do. And in the body of Christ, in order for it to function properly, the body is made up of many different members. It's not all a right hand or a right arm or a finger. It's not all an eye, an ear, or a nose. But the body's made up of many members. And if we're going to be effective, it's each member you know, doing God's will for their life, carrying out their part of the plan. And as exciting as that ought to be for us, and as important as it is to the kingdom of God, the world looks up on it with disdain. The world mocks us. The world, you know, say we are fools for Christ's sake. Back in A.D. 178, a man I met a long time ago. No, I didn't. His name was Celsus, however. A.D. 178, Celsus wrote a letter attacking Christianity. And I run across this somewhere, and I jotted it down. I want you to listen to what he said in his attack. He said, quote, Christians are the most uneducated and vulgar persons. A swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nest or frogs holding a symposium round a swamp of worms convening in mud. Wow. He must have woke up on the wrong side of the bed or something. I mean, you know, to think about describing Christians like that. But let me tell you, that that is just one of many of the critics that we've had down through the centuries. There's never been a generation that didn't have its critics. We have been not only criticized, but we've been persecuted as a result of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if God's going to use us, we've got to understand that we are just a person of like passions. We are common people, but we have an uncommon God. And Whatever it is that God wants to look, it doesn't make any difference what we do for God as long as it is what God is wanting to do in and through us. That's all that matters. You know, somebody might think, well, yeah, you and you and Brother Preston, you're pastors because that's what you wanted to be. No, it's that's not true at all. It's not true at all. If God would just said, look, you know, uh, I'm going to leave it up to you what you want to do with your life. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have said. You know, I've always wanted to be a pastor. I think I'll be a pastor. How about that? You know, I I didn't choose that. He chose me. And 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 so whatever it is that God wants to do in your life, it really doesn't make any difference. Just understand that He can take all of your faults and failures and use you in spite of that, just like He did Elijah. Amen. Secondly. Secondly, the kind of person that God uses as we look at Elijah, we discover that he, that he was a man of perception. I say that, but we'll turn back to 1 Kings chapter number 18. It's better to just read it than it is for me to try to explain all of it to you. 1 Kings chapter number 18. Let's begin in verse number 17. 
And this, this, this is a, a story that we'll get to and really spend some time on later, but I just want you to look at it. Verse 17, And it came to pass when Ahab, the wicked king, saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he answered, this is Elijah answering the wicked king, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed the Balaam. Now therefore send and gather to me all of Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal four hundred and fifty, and the prophets of the groves four hundred, which eat at Jezebel's table. Here was a man that was in touch with God, and it was evident to him that Israel as a nation had departed from God. In other words, what I'm saying is he's able to see things from God's viewpoint. And the attitude, and you'll see later in some of the messages, the attitude of the people in that day was that, you know, well, the temple had been good enough, you know, back during during Solomon's day, but Times have changed, and you know, we, we need to do things different now. And so, now they have degenerated to the point that they don't see anything wrong with worshiping the heathen gods. That's exactly where a lot of folks are in this world today. They think in their mind, one religion is just as good as another religion. Just a while ago, Brother Scott and I was talking about uh, something from from the past, and I made mention of something I've said so many times, and and for you know for a lot of people it's it's just really shocking, and uh, some people are offended by it. You know, we talk about you know the Muslims and how wrong they are. We talk about the Buddhists and how wrong they are. Why are they wrong? Well, the the reason they're wrong is because they're teaching a way of salvation, as we might call it, or a way to heaven that is false, contrary to what the Bible teaches, right? Now, let me ask you, what in the world is the difference between them and what, you know, we call Christian denominations in America today? Think about it. Those that teach, well, you've got to be baptized to be saved, you've got to keep the sacraments to be saved, and so on and so forth. What's the difference? It's a false way of salvation, you see. One's just as bad as the other. So whenever I say a lot of people believe one religion is just as good as another, that's what I mean. Because the majority of people in America today do not believe in, in, you know, an exclusive salvation that's dependent totally upon a personal relationship with Jesus Christ based on grace and faith. They don't believe that. And here we find in that day, these people have got to the point that they think it's all right, you know, well, I'll go down and worship with, uh, you know, with my people, the Jews, one day, and then I'll go over here with my friends and worship these false gods on another day. And Elijah had the discernment to be able to see through that. He, he had the perception that enabled him to recognize the times in which he lived. Solomon understood that. Solomon said in 1 Kings 3.19, Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. 
that I may discern between good and bad. I, I thought it was really amazing, you know, whenever the Lord comes to Solomon and says, you ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Wow, can you imagine that? And Solomon said, I want wisdom. And th this is the reason he wanted wisdom. Give thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people that I may discern between good and evil. He knew that he would fail unless God gave him the, the, the proper perception, the wisdom and understanding that he needed. The problem today is we live in a, in a time where most people today do not have enough spiritual maturity that they're able to discern between what is right and what is wrong. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 14 it says, But strong meat, talking about our spiritual food now, strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, that is, they have matured, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised or discerned between Good and evil. God can use people like that. You'll remember whenever David's men came to him and David had this little ragtag army out there much of the time hiding in caves and fearing for their life. But they were men who had an understanding of what to do, the Bible says. They understood the times that they lived in and what needed to be done. And, and if we want God to use us, we, we desperately have to have that kind of, of perception, insight into the times in which we live. And Elijah had that, and God could use him. So Ahab said, oh, you're the one causing all of the trouble and that's the way they looked at it, this trouble-making preachers in town again. And here he's standing up there, you know, preaching, and the people are getting all riled up, and we've got all this fussing and fighting going on. He, he's nothing but a troublemaker. And Elijah said, no. He said, I'm not the one troubling Israel. You are. You are. Elijah understood the nature of the problem that existed in his day, and we are in desperate need of doing the same thing. Now, let's go back to James, and I want you to see the third thing about the person that God uses. James chapter 5 and verse 16 again, the last part. He says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Notice, and Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. So we know exactly who he's talking about here, right? Notice that phrase, the effectual fervent. That's one word in Greek. The effectual fervent. And it means to be operative, to be at work. It means to put forth power. You know, if we fail to pray, we deprive ourselves of the very thing that we need most. And for all of the talk about prayer, there's not a whole lot of action. And, you know, we, we, we neglect to pray and then we wonder what in the world happened. Or we wonder why didn't something happen. And most of the time it's because we didn't pray. We didn't pray as we should. I remember Elijah, someone that didn't just pray, but he prayed with wisdom because he knew that nothing short of a national calamity was going to awaken the people. He understood that. 
He understood that we've reached the point that nothing's going to wake these people up unless there's some painful calamity that comes upon us. He knew that's what it was going to take. And if you go back to 1 Kings 17 and verse number 1, you see that he prayed for the very thing that God purposed. I want you to think about that. When he prayed, he prayed for what God had purposed. It's like he's praying for God to do what God wants to do. You remember what Paul said, speaking about the Holy Spirit and his ministry. And Paul said, we don't know what how to pray as we ought except the Holy Spirit. See, prayers, prayers like a circle. It doesn't start down here. It starts up there. It's the Holy Spirit working in our heart and the Holy Spirit revealing. I mean, man, if we just prayed the way we feel, nobody would ever die. Nobody would ever get sick. And the Holy Spirit, as He works in our heart, and the Holy Spirit's guiding us to do what? Guiding us to do the will of God. So as we pray in the will of God, we're asking God to do what God wants to do. Well, if we're asking God to do what He wants to do, He's glad to do it. Prayer works that way. But there's so many times, you know, that that instead of doing that, we pray for what we want because we don't know how we ought to pray. And boy, we look at the prayer, we look at the, the prayer life of Elijah and it's amazing because we see that it affected the whole course of nature. Think about being able to pray down fire from heaven or, 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 or let's say stopping the rain. No rain for three and a half years. Well, it's no wonder Ahab said, boy, you're the one causing all of the trouble around here, you know. We hadn't had any rain. The cattle are dying. The people are angry. We need some rain around here. And it was through his prayer life that he was able to stop the rain and even bring down fire from heaven. And all of that was according to God's will. And he asked an important word here. He asked in earnest. The earnest prayer. Notice, the earnest prayer. And by the way, that word earnest literally means prayer. The prayer prayer is another way to say it here. He's literally saying that in prayer, he prayed. We, we, we look at that and we think, in earnest, he prayed. That means he's really sincere. Well, the strict meaning of it is in prayer, he prayed. You say, well, I don't understand what that's talking about. Matthew Henry, I think, gave a good explanation. He said, it's not enough to say a prayer, but we must pray in prayer. I'm afraid a lot of times, you know, we're guilty of just saying a prayer. I said my prayers tonight. We just went through some mentally rehearsed words that we've had stuck in our vocabulary for generations or for, for decades and we just repeat them over and over again. And if we're going to pray effectively, we have to know the mind of God, the mind of Christ in these matters. In prayer, He prayed. I don't know if I sent out the article the other day or wrote it. I lose track of what I'm doing half the time anymore. But uh, it might have been an article that you read. But there used to be a phrase many years ago 
that a lot of the old timers used to, it, it, praying through. And one would ask him and say, Brother, did you pray through? Now, I don't agree. I don't agree at all with what they meant by that in those days. In the free will Baptist, that bunch that believes that you can lose your salvation, I don't know how they can believe that, but they do. And, and I've had some good friends that were free will Baptists. And there are some other Baptist offshoots of that back in the hills of Missouri anyway. And they believe that in order to get saved, you've got to pray through. And so that means you, you'll come forward in the invitation, you'll get on your knees, and usually there'll be, after a little while, if you don't, you know, get up shouting, two or three will come up there beating you on the back and shouting in your ear. And, and, and one of the common phrases, hey, did you get through? Did you pray through, brother? So I'm saying that I don't agree with that kind of praying through. But there is a sense in which we need to pray through because many times we don't ever pray whenever we say our prayers. We don't ever get through, in other words. It's one thing to say a bunch of rehearsed words. It's another thing to be in touch with God and to communicate with God. That's what prayer is. As John R. Rice said, it's simply asking, simply receiving. That's what it is. Discerning the will of God and asking God to do what God has been wanting to do all along. And so Elijah was a man of prayer, and that's the kind of person God can use. Let me tell you, you might not have a great voice and be able to sing special music. You might not be able to play a musical instrument. It might be that you're not even well-versed enough in the Bible to teach a Sunday school class. You can't do a lot of things. It might be that you are not physically able to get out here and to go on visitation and to visit the nursing homes and do a... A lot of different things, but every child of God can have a prayer ministry. And it's something we need to be serious about because nothing in our Christian life is more serious than prayer. Because if we don't pray, we're going to fail. Everything we do, every message I preach, every Sunday school lesson, everything we do in some way depends on prayer and if we're going to be the kind of people God uses, we've got to pray. No way around it. Now, there's one more thing I want to mention tonight, and that's his purity. James tells us, going back to where we just read, that his life, Elijah's life, was characterized by righteousness and prayer. The effectual fervent prayer notice of a righteous man. Both of these go together because righteousness without prayer is impossible and prayer without, without righteousness is futile. It's of no benefit. And, and there are numerous verses of Scripture that tell us that, you know, if we're going to pray effectively, we've got to have a clean heart before God. It depends on, on us having a right relationship with God. And boy, whenever we come to the story of Elijah, here we find an example of a righteous man. Remember, James is writing about this years and years after he's dead, hundreds of years after he's dead and gone. And he's still known as a righteous 
Man, wouldn't it be wonderful if we were all remembered for something like that? You know, whenever these little kiddos we see running around in the church and whenever you and I are dead and gone and we've been gone 30, 40 years and some of these little kids have grown up and they'll remember. You know, I remember back over there at Lakeway and there was sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so. And I'll tell you, they, they were some of the sweetest people I ever knew. They, they, they were some of the most righteous, godly, dedicated people that that I ever knew. Look, we're all going to be remembered for something. And, and I don't know how you would improve on this matter of, of being righteous. That means upright, virtuous. It means conform to the will of God. It speaks about moral purity. And our prayer depends upon that. Let me give you about three verses in just kind of closing down this part of it. Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, and let's face it, a lot of the times we do. We regard iniquity in our heart. We know it's there, but we don't want to deal with it. We know it's there, but we try to shove it over in a corner somewhere. We try to hide it, deny it, or justify it. But if I regard iniquity in my heart, notice the Lord will not hear me. Jeremiah said, your iniquities have turned away these things and your sins have withholden good things from you. And then, of course, you remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy about, I will that all men pray everywhere, what? Lifting up what kind of hands? Holy hands. It makes a difference. Now, in light of all of this, I want to leave you with the question, do you want to be the kind of person that God uses or do you want to be a person that tries to use God? Do you want to be the kind of person that God uses? Or do you want to be like a lot of other people that all you want to do is try to use God? You, you, you think of Him as some kind of a celestial Santa Claus up there, you know. Just dishing out all of the goodies to the boys and girls. I don't know how in the world any Christian could ever be satisfied without knowing in their heart that they are submissive to the thought of God using them. As long as we resist that thought. You know, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to attend the services. I might even, I might even put in my tithe, but I, that's the limit. I'm not going to let God really use me. You'll never be satisfied with your life. You'll never know what real joy is. Because satisfaction comes from knowing that we've done that which pleases God. But not, not only is there that sense of satisfaction, whenever we refuse to let God use us, we end up wasting our life. I've often told about Bev's grandpa. He was saved later in life. And I might add... It was after the death of his son, Kenneth, and, and um, Grandpa was saved. He was uh, really the only Grandpa I ever had or ever knew. I didn't know either one of my Grandpas. Uh, they were dead and gone even before I was a kid. And, uh, but he was, uh, he, he was a sweet fella, and uh, we used to have the 
gospel singing jubilee come on and I can remember him uh, tears coming in his eyes and, and I can remember talking to him uh, about the wasted years of his life wasted years wasted years oh how foolish don't waste your life away let God use you be the kind of person that God can use uh, there's an old song and uh, it'll bring back a lot of memories I know for Kathy and and uh, my family Jesus use me and please Lord don't refuse me surely there's a work that I can do think about that Jesus use me please Lord don't refuse me surely there's a work that I can do what, what is the little fellow's name that I've got I still got his book in my library the that came to their pleasant hope. The first church I passed, no arms, no legs. Graduate, graduated to start with from the University of Texas. Can you imagine that? That's pretty good. But he got saved and he went to Baptist Bible College in Springfield near where I was pastoring. And I, I, got, I got to know him and uh, he, uh, he sang. In fact, I had an old record of him and uh, I can't remember whether it was the Statesman or one of those quartets and little, huh? No, no, not Jim. <laughs> no, you're in country music now. <laughs> uh, not little Willie Wynn either. This guy had no arms and no legs, but he could play a guitar and he could play the organ. And and I remember he came to our church and. Uh, had a, on one of the stubs there and had a, a, a fingernail file, I believe it was, that was in some way put under a, a big band, a bandage or something there, had it taped to his arm, and he'd use that to pick the guitar. I mean, it really sounded good. But I'm saying all that for a purpose because the one song more than any other that he was known for is Jesus use me, please, Lord, don't refuse me. No arms, no legs. Amen. He come, when he came driving up out there, he was driving up by himself when he came in a van that had been rigged up for him to drive it. Shortly after that, he got married. Not long, well, sometime after that, had a little kid. Can you imagine that? You know, look. In, in the first place, his parents could have said, Oh, Lord, what a mess this is. What am I going to do with this little deformed boy and put him in some kind of an institution? But thank God they didn't do that. And as he grew older, he could have said, You know, I'll never be able to play baseball. Thank God for that. I'll never be able to do this. I'll never be able to do that. Instead of, instead of him spending his life complaining about things he couldn't do, he made the best use of what he had and did more than what most people will ever do. Boy, we, look, we need more of that. We need to be that kind of person that God can use. In 1872, in England, D.L. Moody heard an evangelist, his name was Henry Varley, and Henry Varley made a statement during one of his messages. He said, the world has yet to see what God can do through a man who is totally yielded to him. Moody left England on his way back to the States, and he said, quote, 
As I crossed the wide Atlantic, the boards of the deck of the vessel were engraved with them words. And when I reached Chicago, the very paving stones seemed marked with those words, Moody, the world is yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to Him. And then Moody made this statement. He said, by the grace of God, I will be that man. Boy, <laughs> one of the first books I read after getting saved was the, the life story of D.L. Moody and, and then Charles Spurgeon. But it is amazing. Moody was, he didn't have any great abilities whatsoever. His greatest ability was recognizing, I don't have any great abilities, but I'm depending on a great God. And God took him and God used him to shake two continents. God used him in a mighty way. You know, look, we might not have agreed on every little detail of, you know, his theology and what have you, but I. Boy, I don't know anybody that had a greater love and concern for lost souls than he did. And i got news for you. All of our correct doctrine, all of our theology doesn't really mean a whole lot if we don't care enough to get out here and tell poor lost sinners about Jesus who can save their soul. And he did just that. And his name still stands today. The, the college and... The, churches and things that were established as a result of the work that he did. D.L. Moody said, by the grace of God, I will be that man. And here tonight, I hope and I pray that, that you will say, I want to be, I want to be a person that God uses. You ladies, you know, you might say, you know, I'm not a man, you know, uh, but I have a work to do, and it's no less important than any work the men can do. You boys and girls, you might be able to say tonight, you know, I'm not an adult yet, but I've got a work that I can do. And our earnest prayer when we leave here all to be, Jesus, use me. Please, Lord, don't refuse me. i got news for you. He's not going to refuse you. Not if you sincerely come before Him and say, Lord... I, I, I just want to put my life in your hands and you use me any way you choose. I don't care just as long as I know that you're using me to do your will. Become a person that God uses. And some of you right now, the devil's already telling you, well, you, you, you can't do anything that's really of any great significance. That's a lie of the devil. There's no limit to what God can do in your life. And that's why we're going to spend several months considering the Lord God of Elijah to prove to you that our God is able to take those, as Paul said, that are weak and despised and those that are cast-offs from the world. And God said, that's the kind of people I'm looking for. I can use them. So let God use you. Let's stand together. Father... Thank you for the wonderful opportunity that you've given us to be used in your kingdom work. And Lord, I pray that you'll open our eyes tonight to the great possibilities that you have for us. Not that we would do anything for ourselves, not that we would try to gratify our flesh, but rather that we'd seek nothing but your glory 
And that we'd be willing to just surrender our life entirely over into your care. And Lord, that we would just trust you to do with us whatever you would have us to do. We know, Lord, that there are folks incarcerated tonight that are in desperate need of somebody going to the jails and the prisons and telling them about Jesus. There are old folks out here in the nursing homes tonight that they need somebody to care enough to go there and to show the love of Jesus to them. There are people that are in hospitals tonight, Lord, that they just need somebody, somebody to show that they're concerned, just to know that somebody is praying for them and, and standing with them in their time of need. And Lord, every single church and every ministry stands in need of people that want to be the kind of people that God can use. Help us, help us to be that kind of a person tonight in Jesus' name. Let's all stand and we're going to sing. I don't know what.